John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. We're really in part two of the message we began last week, Truth and Lies, Christ and Antichrist. And we'll be focusing on verses 22 through 27, but, but we've got to remember and see the whole context of this passage. And so in a few moments, we'll even kind of get a running start and think briefly about verses 18 through 21, but this is such a rich and helpful portion of Scripture because John shows us here what we need to watch for in those who oppose Christ and how our lives should show and prove that we abide in Christ. And that idea of watching for those who abide in or who oppose Christ is important because it is observational rather than something that we inspect, maybe. You know, we don't want to have that that mindset where we're always just looking at every single small action to say, oh, well, this person's a heretic, this person opposes Christ, or this one abides in Christ and and walks in Christ. Rather, we want to to watch and, and to observe and to learn from one another to see whether or not we are in the faith. And in our day, uh, a text like this, I think, is important to handle with extreme care. And I say that because, on one hand, it's necessary that we fight against division within the church. When we think about Antichrist and those who live and abide in Christ, what we see from the Scripture is that there's going to be division among people. And and so we do need to fight against division, but we also need to understand that those who do not have life in Christ will prove themselves to be such, and we do need to separate. We do need to be divided and pulled out and set apart from the world. And as John makes clear, those who are not of the faith will go out from the church because they don't belong in the church. We need to guard the bride of Christ against the stains and the attacks of the world. And that's what John does here. He explains to the church the the truth that we need to differentiate between antichrist behavior and truly abiding in Christ. And that's a strange-sounding sentence, isn't it? To to differentiate between antichrist and true Christian living because they are, in a sense, diametrically opposed. But there are also, what we see in, in this text is that there is a deceitfulness and a deception from these antichrists, and they want to try to try to work their way into the church and infiltrate the church, and so they're going to say a lot of the right things and do a lot of the right things, and John shows us how we can see the separation between the two. So let's read our text, 1 John 2, 18 through 27, and then we'll ask the Lord's help, and then we will look at God's Word. Would you please stand with me if you're able in honor of the reading of Scripture? Let's give our attention to the holy, inerrant, inspired word of God. It says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. 
I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself has made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. May God write his word upon our hearts to sanctify our souls for the glory of his name. You may be seated. Now let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come and we give you praise and honor and glory, for to you and you alone belongs all honor and glory and praise. You are exalted in the heavens, King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, you are holy and majestic. And when we consider our sin against the backdrop of your great holiness, Lord, how humbling it is think about the fact that you are mindful of us, that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to adopt us as your children into your family, predestining us to be holy and blameless because of the finished and completed work of your Son. Lord, how great a love that you have given us through Christ. And great a sacrifice was given by our Savior at the cross. Lord, may we consider the great sacrifice of Christ and understand that such a love demands more than just verbal affirmation. It demands our lives. It demands our souls. It demands all that we can give. Lord, I pray as we come to your word that your spirit would work powerfully in each one here. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move through the preaching and teaching and proclamation of your truth. Pray that you would help us, again, by your spirit and because of your great grace, help us to understand and apply the truth. Lord, for unless you do the work, we labor and toil in vain. Help us, God, to give attention to your word. Help us to understand the sobering reality of what worship is. Lord, that as we're under your word, that we should give our greatest effort to give full attention and devotion to what your word says. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us not to be distracted 
pray that you would help us to put away and to put aside any thought or anything that would distract us from your glorious truth. Pray that we would feast upon your word, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Lord, you carried about men to write your word so that you could reveal yourself and your commands to your people. So may we receive the word, may it be planted in our hearts and bear fruit. Pray that we would find great hope and great joy and great strength and great blessing in knowing Christ, loving him, and doing what he commands. We pray that you would be glorified in our time. Help us to hear and receive your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So just as we begin, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I think I have a little bit of mental fatigue. I'm having to kind of gear back up from, from teaching kids. There, there's a different type of communication, a lot of interaction that comes with kids that doesn't really bleed over into our time today. So uh, just bear with me as I kind of spin back up to, to this type of proclamation of the Scripture. Now, looking at our text, we can remember what is John's main point. What is his main purpose? We'll come to verses 26 and 27, but he makes it clear there. He says, I write these things concerning those who are trying to deceive you, those who are trying to lead you astray. I'm writing these things so that you will know as those in Christ that you must separate from the world, that you must submit to the truth, and you must be filled with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We, we see a clear purpose. And when we see that clear purpose, dear friend, we must also understand that we then have a clear duty. If the Lord is this clear in his word, our duty is to take the word and broadly apply it in our lives. We don't just hear the word and, and just be, become filled up with it only to let it remain in our minds. It must take root in our hearts. And so, beloved, as we see the truth, may we strive earnestly to broadly apply God's word. We saw last time that what the Lord calls us to here is not popular, because separating from the world is not a popular idea, but that with the purpose kind of helps us hone in on, on a thesis statement for this text. And it's despite its unpopularity, we must evidence our life in Christ, and we do that by being separate from the world. We do that by holding to the truth and walking in the Holy Spirit. And not just separating from the world, but separating from those who oppose Christ. And those who oppose Christ will try to work their way into the church. And so it's unpopular, it's difficult, it is at times exhausting, but we must separate ourselves out from those who are not in Christ. And we do it by holding to the truth and walking by the Spirit. Those who are not in Christ will walk as those who are false, who deceive, who pursue and chase after the desires of the flesh. And sometimes to separate ourselves from the world means that we let worldly people separate themselves from the church because they want to come and be part, because ultimately they want to deceive. 
They want the high standing, maybe in this culture, that comes with professing to be a Christian. And sometimes the most God-honoring thing that we can do with these worldly-minded people is to allow them to separate themselves from the life of the church. Sometimes that's not the answer. Sometimes we chase after them. Sometimes we preach and proclaim the gospel and the truth until we're blue in the face. In a way, we do that every time. But sometimes there comes a point when you let worldly people go because they're not of us. And that's really where we began last time, looking at the character and this portrayal of Antichrist in in verses 18 and 19. Again, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time rehashing last week, but I want to let this kind of be a running start into the, the verses today to set all of the context in our minds. And we began last time just thinking about what is an Antichrist, right? It's those who oppose Jesus. It's those who deceitfully and deceptively oppose Christ. They are set apart and different from false Christ, like Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. Those who called themselves and made themselves out to be the Messiah, those are false Christ. But then you have these Antichrists who want to come into the church and they're just going to twist a little bit and pervert a little bit and tweak a little bit the truth, and it's going to be most evident in their lives. They'll take on the guise of a Christ follower when truthfully they oppose Christ and the gospel. Uh, the prevalence of these antichrists, and there are many in our day just as there were many in John's day, it is, John says, a sign of the times. Children, it's the last hour. Many antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that it is the last hour. It's that hour when, when falsehood is spread, when wickedness propagates, and when evil men go from bad to worse. It is difficult days in which we live. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do we see and how do we know these antichrists? And John says that they have appeared. They've been revealed. They've been made clearly known by their actions, by their lives. This is where we need clarity in the doctrine of sanctification. If the church is going to be guarded from this antichrist behavior, we need to be clear about what sanctification is and what it looks like being set apart being made holy, being righteous, not following after the passions and desires of our flesh. That is how we guard against this. And evangelicals and some so-called evangelicals, I think, struggle mightily with this. And sometimes it's those who have good intentions. They want to be patient. They want to be understanding and kind. But they fail or refuse to see and identify those who are false. And dear friends, we must guard against that. Again, this is not popular. It's not easy. It takes spiritual discernment. But if we're going to guard and protect the bride of Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he purchased with his own blood, we must be willing to stand firm. When these antichrists reveal themselves by their immoral sinful behavior and lifestyles, or by their false teaching, as Paul told the Romans, we should mark and avoid them. Romans 16, verse 17. John says that we can also know these antichrists by the behavior that they don't stay among the church. They have no place within the fellowship of the body. 
John said they went out from us because they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out by God's grace so that it would be plainly shown and revealed that they don't belong. So ultimately, I think we could kind of pare this down to what Jesus said. You will know them by their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. And this doesn't give us free reign to be judgmental, to be harsh, to be impatient with a repentant and penitent sinner. But it reminds us that the actions of someone's life reveals their heart. That's what we have to grab hold of, that that there is need for patience and for gentle, loving, long-term, enduring correction but you will know them by their fruit. And so that was the portrayal, the the picture of these antichrists. And then John talks about this anointing. You have an anointing from the Holy One. You are anointed with the Holy Spirit. It's like that picture of the Old Testament priest being anointed with oil, pouring a cup of oil over their head and having it run down their hair and their body. It's it's this idea of anointment that, that fills in all the all the rough edges and and all the cracks, it's being completely filled with something. And this is what separates Christians, followers of Christ, and Antichrist. You know, Antichrist often, if they're going to deceive, are going to say and affirm a lot of the same things that we do as followers of Christ. But we are filled with the Spirit, and being filled with the Spirit will be evident in your life, the way that you live, the way that you talk, your affections, the things that you pursue. Antichrists walk differently. They walk and live according to the desires of their flesh. They're given over to the deeds of the flesh, to disobedience, ungodliness, and deception. And so that's kind of the contrasting pictures that John begins with. And then he kind of gave this final statement that will launch us into verse 22. He said, no lie is of the truth. So so this is one clear separator, lie, lying, liars, and truth-tellers, those who always live by and tell the truth. So so we begin with these different lives, the Antichrist and those who are filled with the Spirit. And now today, we're going to look at the, the opposing ends of these lives. We're going to see that these liars are condemned. We're going to see that the Lord promises eternal life to those who walk in Christ. And then John's just going to give us a summary charge of these lessons that he's given us. So we'll begin in verses 22 and 23 by seeing liars condemned. John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So John begins with a question that really can be turned into a declarative statement. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? The one who denies the Messiahship of Jesus is a liar. This is what marks the Antichrist. It's what marked the many antichrists of John's day and the many antichrists of our day. It's the person and the work of Jesus Christ that is the ultimate divider of all of history. 
Either you fall on the side of believing that Jesus is the Christ, he is who he says he was, or you fall on the opposite side. Now, it's the divider of all history, but it's not the final divider in salvation because you can believe all these right things about Jesus. You can believe all that the scripture says about him, but it doesn't change your life. It doesn't affect your heart. You need life-giving faith to be saved. But ultimately, again, this is the divider of all of history. Either Jesus is the Christ, or Jesus was just a good man who did some good things, but he was not the Messiah. The greatest division in all history revolves around the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ, because faith in a Jesus who is not the Jesus of Scripture is not a saving faith. So this is what divides Christ followers and anti-Christ. Without the deity of Christ, we would not have a Messiah. Your faith would be worthless. You would be of all men the most to be pitied if you believe in Jesus of Nazareth and he was just a man. He, he would not have been fit and able to live a perfect life and bear the eternal wrath of the Father. But liars say that Jesus is not the Christ. Without the humanity of Jesus, he would not be the man through whom came the resurrection of the dead. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15, that we need Jesus to be a man, our federal head, the second Adam, because we need a man to make us alive, a man to credit us with righteousness, a man to bear our sin. So without the humanity and the deity of Christ, we are of all the most to be pitied. And these liars, these deceivers, these antichrists, what they struggle with is who Christ is and what he accomplished. We live in an age that minimizes the importance of doctrine. And we must hold, to, we must hold the line of the importance of primary doctrines like the doctrine of Christ, the Trinity, the virgin birth, you know, we could come up with a list of things that are really primary doctrines for salvation. And our age minimizes the importance of everything. You just, you can believe whatever you want, and we just want to have this big umbrella, this big tent, and let anyone into faith. But we need to prioritize primary doctrine. Because as we'll see in a moment, these liars who don't hold to the biblical Christ are condemned. They do not have the Father. That leads to a question. How do these antichrists deny Jesus? How do they deny that he is the, the Messiah? How do they deny the Father? And we could kind of pick some low-hanging fruit there and say the first way that we can identify easily is they deny him by verbal profession, by the belief of their heart. There's such a body of evidence of the veracity and the truth of Scripture, and yet there are some who are just so hard-hearted that they refuse to believe and submit themselves to the truth. And you think about John writing to the Gnostics, and certainly there were those who were just open and upfront and saying, you know, we don't think that Jesus could have been deity and humanity. But then there were also those, as John is writing specifically here, who were deceivers, who held that view, but tried to infiltrate their way into the church to spread and to propagate that untruth. And so we need to take care that we're believing and proclaiming 
the whole of who Christ is. We live in, in a day where there are so many spinoffs and so many false religions, spinoffs from biblical Christianity, and we must not waver. We must not soften on this core doctrine of who Christ is. We must hold to it and we must proclaim it. There's another way that these antichrists deny the messiahship of Jesus, and that just plainly is through unholy lives. There are those that will affirm all of the person and the work of Jesus. They will not argue you could read any of the gospel accounts of Jesus, who he is and what he did, and they would agree, and they would affirm, but their lives deny what he commanded. They deny his lordship. You can't have Christ without having him as your Lord. And this is probably a primary marker of these antichrists. They denied the authoritative, life-changing lordship of Jesus as the Messiah. And we must be on guard against this, too, as a church. Because, again, these deceivers are not going to walk in and just boldly proclaim and identify themselves as antichrists as those who oppose Christ, but we can see their lives. We can be on guard against those who want to come in and amass a following and lead many astray. These people come in and they will identify as one of us. You know, we kind of are, are set out and different anyway from many believers in, in our region of the world with holding to reform doctrine. And so there are going to be those who come in and they'll say a lot of the same things we do. But by examination of their lives, we see that they don't belong. And so here is a plain and very clear charge for you, for us, the church, as to how we can help in the fight against that. It's you living a holy life. It's me living a holy life. We help the church identify Antichrist by not living in patterns of sin that then blur the lines of what it can look like for someone who's being sanctified versus someone who's given over to the deeds of the flesh. Yes, there's progression. Yes, when you are saved, you are immature and a babe in Christ, and you're going to battle sins as an infinite Christ that someone who's walked with the Lord for 50 years will never battle against. But you be holy. Be set apart because you help your church identify Antichrist and their behavior when you don't live like the world. Live a consistently holy life. And when we say that, I want to kind of give you a caveat on that. That doesn't mean that every time a fellow saint struggles with sin that we just immediately run and say, oh, that's an antichrist. That's a heretic. That's someone that we need to, to separate from because we are all going to struggle with sin. We're all going to battle the flesh until the Lord returns or until he calls us home. But if the course of someone's life doesn't align with the teaching of Christ, if their teaching doesn't align with Scripture, dear friend, we must be cautious. Our, our antennas should be up a little bit. And that doesn't mean that you go talk to somebody else about them. Go to that person and ask them. Go to that person and confront the sinful behavior. Or if they said something that you don't think aligns with Scripture, go talk to them privately and say, help me understand how that accords with God's 
word. But when you think about what John is saying here, he says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That word denial talks to people who want to spread malicious teachings. Multiple Greek dictionaries pick up on this idea that denying Christ is done with malicious intent. So I tell you that to tell you that we must be on guard. We must be careful. These people deny Christ by immoral, false religion. And dear friends, to deny Jesus is to deny the Father. In Matthew 17, verse 5, the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. So if you don't listen to Christ, you're not listening to the Father. You deny the Son, you deny the Father. Plain and simple. John says, verse 23, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. That is the condemnation of liars. They don't know the Father. They don't belong to the Father. The Father and the Son are one, and to be apart from one of them is to be apart from both of them. Jesus said, whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. There's no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, no name other than that of Jesus Christ. You can't get to heaven apart from the one who is the way, the truth, and the life because no one comes to the Father except through him. So the mark of these antichrists of John's day and of our day is that they're liars. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? They don't love, they don't hold to, and they don't promote the truth. And therein, dear friend, and this should be sobering to us, Their end is destruction. Their end is condemnation. The life that denies Christ, whether in word or in deed, or by word and deed, that one has but one path in eternity. It's the path of condemnation. It's the path of eternal destruction in hell. They will be denied entry into heaven by the just judge of the universe. So the liars are condemned, and then we get to the flip side of this. Life promised. Life promised, verse 24 and 25. As for you, John says, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise which he himself has made to us, eternal life. So he begins... And this is such a, an easy phrase, I think, to miss, but it's such a dividing phrase. He, he gives all this about the liars, but then he says, as for you, as for you. He is setting apart the saints. As for you, let that abide in you which you have had and heard from the beginning. There's this marked clarity, dear friends, that there's only these two paths. The path of Antichrist, which ends in hell, and the path of the followers of Christ, walking in the anointing of the Holy Spirit that leads you to eternal heaven. And again, we're in this month of evangelism where we're focusing on evangelism. Dear friends, we must take this clarity of Scripture and let it be part of our proclamation. There, there is no wavering or waffling on, on the fact that there's just two paths. There's the broad, wide way that leads to the broad, wide gate of destruction, and there's the narrow path 
the narrow way, the narrow gate. There's nothing in between. As for you, you are separate and set apart, and we need to proclaim that with ultimate clarity. So John says, as for you, let that, let that word abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. Let that abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. And thinking about this, my mind immediately went to the parable of the sower, Luke chapter 8. If you want to turn there and read along, Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 8, and really Jesus then goes on to explain the parable as well. But uh, I think when we think about abiding in Christ and his word abiding in us, this is so clarifying. Luke 8, beginning at verse 4. It says, when a large crowd was coming together, and those, for various, those from various cities were journeying to Jesus, he spoke by way of a parable. Jesus said, the sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road. It was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And other seed fell into the good soil, and it grew up, and it produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as Jesus said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So think of this. There, There are those who receive the word with eagerness. Then they fall away. And Jesus then went on to explain this at verse 13, if you're still in Luke 8. He said, those that, that seed that fell on the rocky soil, those are the ones who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root, and they believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. It, it, it's seed that falls somewhere where there's no depth of soil, there's no root, it can't continue to receive nutrients, and they fall away. They apostatize. They become anti-Christ because they were never in Christ. But then there's also, on the other hand, those who receive the word in their heart. Verse 15 of Luke 8 said, but seed and good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and they hold it fast, and they bear fruit with perseverance. The Lord causes his word to bear fruit fruit. He causes his word to take root. And if you are a newer follower of Christ, if you are younger in the faith, this should be your focus, to abide, to remain, to to stand fast and to steadily let the word take root in your heart. You don't have to go from an infant to a father in the faith overnight. You're not going to. So if you're new in the faith, Be steady. Remain. Let the truth take root in your heart and transform you and and cause you to bear fruit. And so you say, well, what does that look like? It looks like exactly that, like the word takes root and it bears fruit in your life. You abide in the truth by abiding in Christ and then you love him and you obey him because of that love and devotion. Think about what Jesus said in John 15 verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, 
that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What do he say? You bear much fruit. And that glorifies the Father and it proves your discipleship. To, to know that you're abiding in Christ, to know that you're seeing this fruit that is, that is God-honoring and transforming your life, that is going to remain, it's that it's an increasing fruit. You're not just constantly scraping by with the bare minimum obedience. You're not just doing the, the smallest bit that you can to, to give indication that you love the Lord, but you love Him from the depth of your heart. And as we sing, you understood that that love that He shows you in Christ demands you return a similar love. You give your whole life as an active service, a sacrifice of worship, pleasing and acceptable to God only in Christ. You bear much fruit. You labor and expend yourself for glorifying the Lord. You don't do it out of a sense only of duty, but because it brings you joy, brings you joy to please your Father. Continue to expand on that. Think about Jesus' teaching there in John 15 about the vine and the branches. And when I hear branch, my mind kind of goes to thinking about a tree. And really, that's not what he was speaking to. It's more like a grapevine, a, a, a vine that kind of is maybe hung along a trellis or another type of cable. And so you have the vine, and then coming off the vine is branches. So it's a smaller vine than a tree trunk with branches coming off of it, and they bear fruit. They receive nutrients from the vine that causes them to bear fruit. They don't bear fruit, if you've ever looked at a grapevine, it doesn't bear fruit and try to curve its way back up to the vine. It bears fruit so that that fruit can show that it has life. That's our Christian life. You produce fruit because you're alive in Christ and by His doing, you remain in Him. It's not because you suddenly found a way to get your own nutrients. It's because you abide in the vine, and the vine gives you all that you need to cause you to produce fruit. His word, his life, his spirit, they fill you. They overflow you. They are evident in your life. And, you know, stretching this analogy over to the idea of an apple tree. Have you ever walked up to an apple tree and thought that you could cut the branch off and just take it home and set it in your kitchen and it would give you, apple, you apples year after year? No, of course not. That's utterly foolish. A branch can't bear fruit if it's not connected to its vine, to its source of nutrition. Rather, you would expect uh, a good, healthy branch connected to a good, healthy vine or tree to bear good fruit continually year after year. And this is important, friends, you know, thinking about our, our kids. This is important in shepherding our kids because on one hand, we absolutely, as parents, we demand obedience. There's no ifs, ands, or buts because that's a one way that we protect our children. And we guide them to, to train them to honor and obey the Lord's word. But we must remember and we must constantly remind them that what we're demanding, what we're asking for is not merely external obedience. Rather, we're searching for fruit that flows from the heart. You want your child to obey you because they want to do what you've told them. Ultimately, because you want to teach them to do what the Lord tells them. 
So we don't teach them to produce fruit merely externally, but to have life in their souls. And this life, John says, coming back to 1 John 2, verse 25, this life is connected to a promise. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. Dear friend, that's the end of abiding and remaining in Christ. It's not that you keep some set of rules and then you get to stand on a pedestal and be seen as one who has borne much fruit, but it's that you're a partaker of the promise of eternal life. Jesus said in John 10, I give them eternal life and they never perish and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. So what is your role in this? Well, in a way, and I don't say this at all to make light of that analogy, but in a way, you just hang there like a branch. You just abide and receive the nutrition and the life-giving strength that comes from your vine, Christ. You receive his word, you walk in a spirit, and then you produce fruit. And the glorious thing of this is that this is a promise of God. This is a hope that remains. This is what he has given to us, that he will keep us. Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and no one can snatch them out of my hand, and my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is a promise of eternal life as long as you abide in Christ. And you can't do anything to abide in him. He holds you, and he keeps you, and he causes you to bear fruit. And if you see the fruit of abiding in Christ, dear friend, rest in it. Don't continue striving and laboring and wondering if you're in Christ because you can't produce anything good on your own. So if there's any evidence of good fruit, it's because you have the Spirit of God in you. Rest in his promise that this is eternal life. So coming to verses 26 and 27, we see kind of John's summary charge of these lessons. So if you want an outline for today, it's liars condemned, life promised, and lessons charged. Verses 26 and 27. These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. But as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and it is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So again, we come back. This is what this passage is all about. There's the deception, those who are trying to deceive you, and the charge to walk in the anointing of Christ. So ask a couple questions. How do these deceivers deceive? And why do they deceive? I think the how really becomes clear if you flip over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3 verses 7 and 8. John writes there, little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. So how do these deceivers deceive you? 
It's by trying to blur the lines of what is sin and what is righteousness. They try to cloak their unrighteous living with proper biblical spiritual speech. They try to make it where you can't understand that the one who practices righteousness is righteous. Dear friends, these are the words of God. They are true. The one who practices, who lives a life of righteousness is counted righteous in Christ, and the one who practices sin is a child of the devil. Religious speech that does not lead to holy living is empty and vain, and quite frankly, it's very dangerous. Religious speech that doesn't conform you to the image of Christ is dangerous because it just fills your mind with, with things that ought to cause holy living, but they don't change you. And that's dangerous because then it just kind of hardens you and calluses you to the need of sanctification. You know, there will be those who openly oppose Christ in word and deed, but there are also those who are deceivers. And we need to have that set in our mind, and we need to have it set in our mind often to understand that we have to fight a battle. We have to stand firm against this falsehood that there can be life in Christ that doesn't create lasting change. In our day, so many are so soft on this idea of sanctification, the proclamation of the truth. And in many so-called churches today, every vile kind of sin is found to be acceptable. I want to pause there and remind you, dear friend, that every vile kind of sin also includes every one of your pet sins, every one of my pet sins, every sin that you or I complete in in public or in private and nobody knows about, that falls under this category and we must fight against them all. We must guard against the drift of the flesh because we're in an age that is so utterly sinful that you're not going to just kind of remain on a path without striving and laboring. You're either going to drift into sin because the world around you is so utterly immoral or you're going to be constantly killing sin and putting it to death. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And we must work together in this striving. Okay, this, this is not an individualistic thing, but we work together to fight against that drift of the flesh, and we do it for the purity of the bride of Christ. Because we're supposed to be holy and blameless in Him. We walk in that way. We don't bring wrinkle or spot or stain to the bride of Christ. So why are these evil actors trying to infiltrate the church? Why do the deceivers try to deceive? And that's simply because they want to discredit the true message. They want to attain authority and power to themselves so they can spread their heretical message. They're of their father, the devil, and they're coming to do his bidding. And we need to understand that that is the motive. And thus, we need to stand firm. We need to remain. We need to identify those and resist them. When you're a set-apart people, and you proclaim to be a set-apart people, and you strive to be a set-apart people, dear friends, you're going to be called rigid and closed-minded. 
and arrogant and many other demeaning things, but you stand firm because it's what the Lord has called you to do. It's what the Lord has called us to do because there's many deceivers who would bring much dishonor to the name of Christ and bring all kinds of division to his church, and we must resist. And we do this, John says, as for you, the anointing which you have received abides in you. You have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and it's not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So how do we resist? We abide in Christ. We let his anointing live in us. You know, that reminds us of 2 Peter chapter 1. The Lord has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. John isn't saying that we don't need instruction. He's saying that all the instruction that we need comes through the Holy Spirit and through the revealed truth of his word. His anointing teaches you all things. It's true, and it's not a lie. So John comes to this final charge. You abide in him. You remain. You be steadfast. You stand firm. And that is an individual you. But it also needs to be a collective you, that we work together to remain. We work together to resist the attacks of falsehood. The strength and this ability is not your own, but it's the Spirit of God working in you. And the Spirit of God works in you through His Word and through the other means of grace like corporate worship and the partaking uh, of the Lord's Supper through the life and health of the local body. So we must stand firm together standing firm in the strength of the Lord through His Spirit. Paul said in Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Put on the Lord's armor and stand firm. I'll close with Jude chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Scripture says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. So it's him who keeps us. It's him who keeps you from stumbling. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we